from the very earliest times it was clear that being a Christian meant that you lived a different way. In the very early days of the New Testament church, Christians were not known as or called Christians. That title first came to be used, we read, in Antioch. Uh, precisely when that was is difficult to date, but a good few years after Pentecost. When Saul of Tarsus is introduced to us, hunting down followers of Christ in Acts chapter 9, those in the church at that time were most commonly known as people of the way. And in fact, even towards the end of the book of Acts, long after the term Christian had started to be used, the term the way is still in use. Luke uses it as late as Acts chapter 24. And of course, the way was a very fitting title for those who were following the one who called himself the way. And it came about because those early Christians identified with one another and were identifiable in the world as those who were living lives which followed a very different path to everybody else. They were literally walking a different way to those around them. And this other way is a topic about which Jesus frequently made reference. Much of the Sermon on the Mount is about walking and living a different way. Not that being a Christian is just about trying your best to live a different lifestyle. But that in being a Christian, having been born again by the power and grace of God, and now living according to that grace and power as a child of God, with a heart that desires to love him and serve him and please him, that has to make a difference. And that has to cause us to walk a different way. But it also results in a great battle for us as Christian people. Because the pull of the world can still be quite strong. If we're not careful, sometimes we can give the impression that we have set ourselves the target of living a life with the least amount of difference that we think the Bible will let, will let us get away with. Well, may the Lord keep us from that. The encouraging thing is that Jesus knows all about our struggles. He knows our weaknesses. And even in his own disciples, he regularly sees bubbling up within them attitudes that ought not to be there. Frequently, he has to call them to task over it. Now, it's very helpful because if he were amongst us, I'm fairly confident he'd be having to call us to task over exactly the same things. Attitudes and priorities. Areas of real, constant, ongoing battles in the hearts and minds of the Lord's people. And there are numerous issues 
which Jesus addresses, and quite a number of them crop up in the second half of Mark chapter 9. And so we're going to look at them. Attitudes and priorities. And those verses that we read before, I want to categorize under five headings. Here's the first. The issue of greatness. The issue of greatness, verses 33 to 37. Now, greatness is something admired and coveted in the world. Interestingly, it's something over which people can feel both hatred and desire. You see someone with all the trappings of wealth and success. You can find yourself despising them for what they have and you haven't. And yet, you long to be in their shoes. You long to be the one who everyone else despises. Such is the perversity of the sinful heart in this wicked world that we live in. Occasionally I've listened to Christians who seem to be rather caught between two opinions. On the one hand, making comments about people's wealth as though it's something to be admired and applauded and then almost reluctantly perhaps admitting that that isn't the kind of thing that a Christian should be worrying themselves about. I think perhaps it's a topic that catches some believers in something of a dilemma. I suppose that's the reason why it's a theme that keeps re recurring throughout the teachings of Jesus and which the apostles would also find that they need to address within the life of the early church. And I think, like the disciples, it takes a while for the penny to drop that Jesus actually means the things he's saying. They're not just nice proverbs. They're not just nice thoughts. This really is the kind of life we ought to be living as God's people. Now, on this occasion in Mark chapter 9... Jesus and the disciples have returned to Capernaum and they go into a house. Now perhaps, we don't know for certain, but perhaps it's the family home of Simon, Peter and Andrew because that's where we found them in chapter 1. And he questions his disciples about an argument they've been having which he has overheard. Now in our New King James Version, you'll see there the word disputing. If you have a version, uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version, that has a, a softer tone. It has the word discussing. If you look at the NIV, well, that is a bit more like the New King James. That uses the word arguing. Actually, what would be a really good word is bickering. That would be a good translation of what the disciples were doing. They were bickering amongst themselves. They're acting like immature teenagers. And Jesus asks them, what were you bickering about? It's the kind of question that parents have had to address over their shoulders to the children on the back seat of the car as they're driving along. It's probably been responsible for more accidents than we care to imagine. What is it now? And Christ's 
question is met with eyes diverting their gaze and an embarrassed silence. Because they've been arguing amongst themselves about which of them has been the greatest. And don't they now feel rather foolish? And as we look at the disciples and shake our heads in disbelief, we dare not admit that this is the kind of judgment that we can too easily be making all the time within our own thoughts as we rank everyone else against ourselves. And I guess if ever you've done that, you put yourself higher than most. Of course, your modesty would forbid you to put yourself, you put yourself top of the pile. But all the while... Christ is shaking his head in frustration at me. Not you as well. Is that you? I love love verse 35. Jesus sits down and calls the twelve. There's obviously more than just the twelve. But it's the twelve he's interested in. Come here. I, I can't help imagining them standing there in front of him, looking all sheepish, like a row of naughty schoolboys. Jesus looks up at them like a football coach at half-time, whose team have totally disregarded all of his tactical instructions, and they've come in after the first 45 minutes, and they're 3-0 down. Maybe that's just the Evertonian in me. Jesus, at times, must have felt so exasperated with these men, but notice something very special. Because Jesus is God, he remains true to his nature. It's very important. He remains true to his nature. And so he's patient. And he's gracious. And he's long-suffering towards them. Which is good news for me. And I suspect that's good news for you. He's kind. And he needs to rebuke them. But he only wants to edify them and build them up. And of course, the issue of remaining true to your nature, that's that's the point that we as Christians have to keep learning. Being true to your nature. The new nature that you now have as a Christian It's a nature of servanthood. In the world, greatness is about how many people serve you. In Christ's kingdom, greatness is about how many people are served by you. In the world, greatness is about how much you get. In Christ's kingdom, greatness is about how much you give. The greatest in God's kingdom are those who put themselves right at the back. The ones who put the apron around their own waist, get down on their own knees and wash everyone else's feet. And they do it with a smile on their face and with love in their hearts. And they don't need or require or expect anything in return. Because they have the nature of a servant. 
It's not you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours in the kingdom of God. It doesn't work that way. That's the world's way. Not in the church. In the church, it's how can I serve you? And now, how can I serve you some more? That is greatness in Christ's kingdom. Be great like that. And there are children in this home, verse 36. There's every possibility that these are the children of some of the disciples. Maybe they're the children of Simon, Peter and Andrew, if that's whose home they're in. And Jesus beckons one of the little boys, only a young boy. Jesus is seated and he beckons the boy to him. He puts his arms around him. Now, think about this with me. The world we live in is all about what can I get out of it and what's in it for me? That's what people are interested in. If you do something for a young child, what can you hope to gain for yourself from that child? There's no personal advantage whatsoever. You do something for that child for no other reason than they are needy and vulnerable and you have a heart to help them. And you're not looking for anything in return. And you expect nothing in return. Your heart is simply to help the child. And says Jesus, every time you do that, even for a child, your Father in heaven sees. And your Father in heaven knows. And he looks upon it as having been done for his own son. That's the kind of life and nature that Christ wants in his people. It's not the eyes of the world and how great they think you are that you need to be worrying about. It's the eyes of your heavenly father and his definition of greatness that you need to be thinking about. In the world, people are generally motivated to do things on the basis of profit or gain. Things they'll get out of it. And the degree of profit dictates how they spend their time and energies. The more they think they'll get, the more they're happy to put into it. That's how many people live. At a push, now and again, they will do something charitable. But rarely will, will it be at personal cost. Very rarely will it be at personal cost. Very rarely will there be anything sacrificial about it. They have standards of living to maintain. They have creature comforts that they need. They have personal amusements that must not be interfered with or threatened in any way. And they'll make sure that they have all of those things in place first. And charity can have anything that's left over. I hope, as Christian people, that's not how we live in relation to Christ and Christ's church. That's not the example Christ has left for us. Greatness. There is such a thing in Christ's kingdom. 
but it's very different to that which you find in the world. Another theme that crops up in verses 38 to 42 is community. The wider Christian community in which we exist. Your car has broken down. You're at the side of the road and as you get out of your car to try and work out what's wrong with it, you see an AA van or an RAC van or whichever is your breakdown service of choice van coming the other way. And so you flag it down, not knowing whether he's going to stop anyway. But to your great delight, he does stop. What's likely to be the first question he asks? Are you a member? Are you with us? Are you one of us? And you dread having to say no, because the window will go back up and he'll just carry on. You have a problem at work. You decide to ring the union for help. What will they check first? Are you on the list? Have you paid your dues? It's an interesting thing, relationships across the wide Christian community. Who's in, who's out, who's with us, who's not? Whose club do we join? We believe very much in church membership because it's clearly taught in the Bible. We believe that a clear understanding of doctrine is hugely important because what we believe has to be in line with what God intends us to understand from his word and how what we believe regulates how we behave. So that's hugely important. We believe it's very important that those churches with whom we have a really close association, who we work with, they need to be like-minded with us. Otherwise, there's, there's going to be constant tensions and points of friction that's not good for anyone. It's not good for our witness. It's not, not glorifying to God. But look at the disciples in verse 38 who've told an outsider, someone who's not one of us, someone they didn't know, you can't possibly be going around doing and saying these things in the name of Jesus Christ. How dare you? Stop it. He doesn't hold our membership card. So we stopped him, they tell Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them. He may not be in our group, but he's not against us, says Jesus. Therefore, he is on our side. This is an interesting lesson to learn 2,000 years later with an abundance of denominations all across the globe. What of the Christian world out there that are not of us, so to speak? It's very easy to become high-minded it's very easy to be dismissive of others, but be careful. We may be concerned for them because in all sincerity, before God's word, we believe that they have things doctrinally wrong. 
Is, is that an error on our part to be in that position? No, I don't believe it is. You can be concerned about it, but don't treat them like the enemy. Because they're not the enemy. There are many out there who are born again believers. They don't meet us eye to eye on every point. But they are seriously and sincerely engaged in gospel work. And they love and they worship Christ for all the same reasons we do. And they're to be embraced as brothers and sisters in Christ. Despite our differences, we are on the same side. And we must not treat them as if they're the enemy. We must recognise and acknowledge them as fellow workers in the wider Christian community. We don't ask to see their membership card and shun them because we can't find the words Reformed Baptist written on it. Now, as I say, the reality of these things, 2,000 years on, are complex and they can be very difficult. Because of the way certain Christians and certain churches behave and the things that they do, and it can make it difficult for us to work closely with them. But what we don't do is look down our noses at them. We thank God for them. Pray for them. Because they're not against Christ and therefore they're not against us. They may be different, but they are on the same side. If we were to hold a general meeting like something for the Christian Institute or Answers in Genesis, and Christians from all kinds of churches from all across Liverpool all came along, we would rejoice to see them. We would welcome them warmly. We wouldn't view them with suspicion. Now, some of you know only too well from personal experience that great discernment and much grace is needed in this area. And of course, it's often church elders who have to lead the way in these kinds of matters. Sometimes there may be a group who call themselves Christian. And you know, we really do have to question whether they are Christian at all. And those kinds of Issues will normally revolve around certain primary things. Things like their view of scripture and its authority. Their doctrine of Christ and the gospel that they preach. Those kinds of things are usually the primary areas. Jesus says nothing about this man that the disciples are talking about that he came and joined them. but to have tried to forbid him from doing things in the name of Christ was a big step too far. We're a small part of a much larger Christian community and for all of our differences, we're on the same side. And so we have to heed the words of Christ here and tread very carefully with lots of grace and look to the Lord to help us and guide us in all of these things. And thirdly, what are our values? What are our values? Verses 41 to 42. What's big and what's not? What's significant and what isn't? 
what's of value and what is of no worth. These things change completely when you come to Christ, or at least they should. A whole different set of values exist in God's kingdom. Which is why, for example, we read in Psalm 37 at verse 16, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. Because all your values have changed. Attitudes and priorities have changed completely as a Christian believer. And so, Jesus talks about a cup of water. A cup of water is given to someone in the name of Christ because they know that that person belongs to Christ. That's the motive for giving it. And Jesus says that's big in God's eyes. But it's just a cup of water. But why is it being given? Here is a brother or a sister. Let me offer them some refreshment because they're a brother or sister. That's big in God's eyes. Don't look down your nose on the small things done faithfully in love for Christ. Don't despise those small acts of kindness, those small examples of thoughtfulness. Don't dismiss those in the church who really cannot do as much as you do. But what they can do, they do faithfully. And they do it consistently. And they do it because they love Christ. And they do it because they love you. Those things are big in God's eyes. Jesus valued far more highly the single might given by the widow than all the riches being poured into the treasury boxes outside the temple. Have you realigned your attitudes and priorities? Have you realigned your life? to the values which matter in the kingdom of Christ. That's what Jesus is concerned about. Likewise, a little child. It will be better for you to be dead than to cause a child to stumble spiritually. That's a big statement, isn't it? It will be better for you to be dead than to cause a child to stumble spiritually. There's no one in this room that that doesn't affect. They're all around us. Think about that very carefully. What do they see? What are the expressions on your faces that they notice? What words and attitudes do they overhear in our conversations? What is it that they are being taught to value and think important when they look at my life and yours? 
what are they learning from us should be the priorities in the life of a Christian. What example of sacrifice do they see in our lives? What are they learning from you, from me, regarding the place of Bible study and prayer? What are they learning? What do they learn from you in terms of serving in the life of the church? Once you get started, the list just keeps rolling, doesn't it? Better for you to die, says Jesus, than lead a little one astray. I think we can also apply that to those who are young in the faith amongst us too. In many parts of the world, you know, children are treated as nothing. In some parts of the world, children have guns placed into their hands. Come and fight with us. In some parts of the world, children are sent to run on the errands of drug dealers and all the rest. Values in Christ's kingdom are very different to those in the world. We today should be standing out as people of the way. And it also involves forsaking from verse 43 to 48. Forsaking. Now, of course, there are many people in the world who reject completely out of hand any notion of hell. They simply will not entertain what they believe is an outdated, an outdated method of putting the frighteners up people. A way of keeping people under the thumb. A way of securing their submission to your authority. Others, when you mention hell, will simply laugh. Six times in six verses, Jesus says that hell is real and it is a place of unimaginable and eternal torment. The Greek word translated as fire is Gehenna. And Gehenna was the name of a place just outside the wall of Jerusalem. It was the city rubbish dump and it burned continuously. The fire never went out. And he tells us that the path of sin is a path that leads to Gehenna. It's the path that leads to hell. Fire. Endless torment. Now there are many things in this world which in themselves are not sinful. And they may be put either to works of righteousness or to works of wickedness. Your hands and your feet, your eyes, they can do much good and they can see much good. But they can also do much evil and see much evil. Here's the message from Christ. If there is anything in your life that causes you to sin, anything at all that leads you to thoughts or words or actions which have no place in the Christian life, if there is anything that is keeping you from being obedient to the word of God, if there is anything at all, no matter what it is, forsake it, get rid of it, cut it out. There's nothing that you can gain here on earth which exceeds what you will have in heaven. Nothing. There is nothing that you can hold on to here on earth 
that you will think was worth it when you look back on it from hell. No one in hell will say, I really don't mind being here because at least I had that then. No one will be in that position then. If you're not a Christian this morning, look at the text of Scripture and in it hear the voice of Christ. This is what he's come to save you from. Will you not forsake your sin and run to him? Name one thing in this life that's worth hanging on to in the context of what's coming next. Name one thing. And if you do profess to be a Christian, if you're a Christian believer, work out your salvation. Work it out in fear and trembling. And part of that is getting rid of everything that's causing you to sin. Or just might, might be. Just might be. Demonstrate the genuineness of your faith by letting go and cutting off and being rid If you don't, it could be that you're actually another Demas who for the love of the world turned back because actually it was still the love of the world that was ruling his heart, not his love for Christ. You name one thing that you'll be glad you kept hold of if you're looking back at it from hell. Ian, you say, This is strong language. My friend, it's the language of Jesus. Forsaking all. Forsaking all. If you're married, that's what you promise to do for your spouse. How much more should we be ready to do it for the Lord of glory? And finally, seasoning. The last two verses, seasoning. Now, if you've got in front of you an NIV or an ESV, you do not have the phrase, everyone will be seasoned with fire. And that's just based on the particular manuscripts that the translators used. But it's included in the New King James. Every, everyone will be seasoned with fire. This, There's a lot of discussion as to exactly how this should be understood. Here's my conviction. The fires of hell will burn forever in the purging of sin. And it will be an eternal purging. Fire kills infection. And fire kills that which causes infection. It is said, how much truth is in it, we don't know. It is said that the great fire of London played a huge part in ridding the city of disease. The fires of hell are where the burning of corruption takes place. The fires of hell are where the burning of wickedness takes place. And in that sense, it is like an eternal seasoning. But none will escape it and it will never end. It's quite a choice you're making if you're choosing to reject Christ. But for others, there's another type of seasoning that takes place. The seasoning of the Holy Spirit who purges our lives of sin. 
in Leviticus and Ezekiel, we read of salt being added to burnt offerings. Salt representing purity and preservation, making them acceptable to God. And we read in Romans 12 that we are to be living sacrifices. And this talk of being seasoned with salt takes our minds straight back to the Sermon on the Mount again in Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about us being seasoned with salt and being salt and light in this world. Don't lose your saltiness in this world. The seasoning process of sanctification in the Christian goes on and on and on. And you do that by giving yourself fully to all these things that Christ is talking about in these verses. Greatness, community, values, forsaking, heeding the exhortations of your Saviour. In Christ's kingdom, these things don't function like they do in the world. Attitudes and priorities, all must change if you're following Christ.